You're listening to Disruptive Dialogues on the Future of Religion. Our aim is to provide listeners tools for a conversation on how religion is changing and being affected by society. I'm your co-host, Troy Shepard. I'm an app developer and a business entrepreneur and a researcher on cultural trends related to religion and community. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Heidi Campbell, a professor of communication at Texas A&M University, where I study the intersection of religion, media, and digital technology. Welcome, and let's dive into today's conversation. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the topic, Addressing the Sin of Racism Within the American Church. Now, this is a really weighty topic, and we just started to do some thinking and talking about it, but we just wanted to share with some thoughts that are coming to our mind. I began to start thinking about this um, at the beginning of the summer when I was reading Anthea Butler's book, White Evangelical Racism, and then Robert P. Jones, he came out with a similar book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And while they are taking different takes and on, on the same kind of topic, they're both trying to get into the, the history of the church, how the church has engaged in the South and in the North with understandings of race and culture and just kind of moments where the church either did respond and maybe responded badly or responded in ways that were problematic. And so recently, Robert P. Jones, this past week, wrote an article, an editorial for Time magazine. And the title of that editorial was The Unmaking of the White Christian Worldview. So he picks up the themes from his book and some of the themes that Anthea Butler also talks about. And so we want to kind of reflect on some of the arguments that are put forth and just what that has meant for us and how the kind of thoughts that it stirs in us and thinking about how do we address this issue. Yeah, and so we've kind of divided this into three different areas that we're going to talk through today. The first being what we call a lie. So we'll talk about that a little bit and then some steps to recovery, and then uh, we'll get into our third final topic. So under the lie, basically the, the understanding that the American Christianity is based on this myth of a white Christian church. And I'll read this statement that comes from this article that Jones wrote. He says, What we have taken to be the bedrock of our faith and a biblical worldview, that we alone are God's chosen people to bring salvation and civilization to the world, is not an eternal truth grounded in the Bible but rather a self-serving lie rooted in white supremacy. So this lie that he's talking about, he's trying to kind of say that there's been this unspoken kind of rule or, or kind of mindset that when Christianity and the church is talked about, it's talking about a very specialized, a very bounded version of Christianity and the church, that it's a, a view of the church that is based on exceptionalism and specialization, and that it only includes a certain group of people. So, you know, when he raised this point, I kind of thought back to my days in Sunday school. I was raised in a very kind of conservative and kind of evangelical fundamentalistic background. And so I remember when we talked about things about the church, and especially like Bible stories from the Old Testament. And we would you know, read the story about you know, what the people of Israel did in the, the wilderness or whatnot. And, but I remember uh, on many occasions, a uh, Sunday school teacher would say something like, well, in the Old Testament, we know that this was talking about the people of Israel. But nowadays, we know that, all, that this is really talking about the Christian church you know, and about how we as America are chosen nature by God. And we have this unique kind of sense of culture and freedom and values. And so that allows us to kind of fulfill what Israel started. So 
this idea that the American, when you hear the people of Israel, it really means the American Christian Church, is called replacement theology. Basically, it's the replacing as a metaphor or as an idea Christianity of the Bible for how, what God actually set out in, in his plan and his chosen people. And so, you know, little, little sayings like this that were frequent in my childhood and in Sunday school days were kind of informing this kind of lie. And I've just begun to realize like, wow, how my man said about what the, who the church is has been informed by these kind of images and, and stories. And I think how many of us too have been in the exact same church settings and maybe don't even realize what has been said to us or what has been initiated as this is just part of what the church is about and what the church instructs us or models is something that we we just take for granted and we don't Mm -hmm. question it and when we don't question it where does that leave us that leaves us not understanding real truth but buying into a much bigger lie and just for example, you know, we were talking about uh, just like the images that we saw of Jesus growing up. And I know like in those Sunday school material or flannel graphs. And Troy, what, what was your experience? Like what did Jesus look like when you were in, looking at Sunday school materials and stuff growing up? Yeah, and of course, I, I grew up uh, in a very remote part of Alaska as well. But even there, I think it was very similar all across the Western world, or at least America, is this, this image of non-ethnic based picture or image, uh, a very Caucasian person that, of course, as a child, I could relate to because I saw somebody who looked very familiar, I guess. It wasn't much different than who I was. And what's actually interesting is the remote part of Alaska that I grew up in, I was a minority. I was a 15% minority when I first moved there. Most of those other children that I interacted with were not of my race at all. But I had no idea because when you go to church, like everything looked like what I saw in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was no like, I mean, there, there should have been a disconnect, I think, but I was a child. So I, I didn't, like, I just grew up with this disconnection as this is the way it was. So, you know, what I, I think that Robert Jones is, is arguing is that we may not have heard in church that you're know, saying you know they, that the church is white and the and Christ was Caucasian, but the images we got, the kind of message we got, the underlying ethos and beliefs kind of supported this idea of what he describes later in the article that you know Christianity in America is seen as a special tribe. Whatever our humble social station might be, we white Christians were chosen instruments of spreading salvation and civilization to the world. And I remember this true that we often had Missionary Sunday and, you know, once or sometimes twice a year where missionaries would come to visit. And it usually was from exotic place or sounded to us like, you know, South America or some island, um, Africa. And they would bring back pictures of, of the people that they ministered to and they would bring back things from their culture. And it was always inside that, you know, the missionaries were always white and the people they always were reaching out to were brown or black or of other different kind of ethnic backgrounds. And it was the idea that, you know, white missionaries, we were called to go to these other parts of the world because there wasn't any Christian voice there. We needed to be that kind of savior and that tool of salvation in the world. And the, even the missionaries who worked with them really treated them like, you know, what we talk about, about other 
othering, of that they were this something other than us, and that you know we were chosen to go to these people. And so these narratives, again, this this lie he's saying is again subtle. It's often not direct, and he's trying to unmask it in this editorial about how these ideas of white supremacy have filtered in the church in many different ways. Yeah, we're definitely not coming against the missionary idea or the missional idea, you know, in a sense of, you know, we we shouldn't minister to those or, or reach out to those who are different because that's just wrong. Uh, we're definitely not saying that. But it's interesting, if you go to most American Christian churches today, you will see vibrant segregation, uh, no matter which cultural church you choose to attend, whether it's, I mean, it doesn't really matter. There is, I, I can't remember the, where this quote was, if it was Martin Luther or not, but he said, you know, the, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning. And I think even today that rings true, even if our missional intent is a little bit skewed or flawed, we live <laughs> in the ultimate segregation just right in our own front yard. It's not even in our backyard, you know. Uh, it's right front and center, and that's unfortunate. So th- this leads us to our kind of the step two, which in the towards the end of the article, Jones kind of gives two steps to recovery or recover how to kind of deal with the situation, this kind of racism in the church, this kind of exclusivism. And so he puts forth two kind of, like basically he doesn't give a whole plan, but he does give a starting point. And he said, the first thing is we need to uh, separate being white from being Christian. The idea that it's intertwined with our ideas of what, or what the, who the church is and what it means to be Christian should be kind of uh, detangled from white culture and especially white American culture to look at kind of more of a larger historical narrative or what some people might call like a kingdom culture narrative. And the second thing he suggests as a step to recovery is we must confess our role in a culture that in systematic ways we have built a society that reflects the conviction that to us and to God, our white lives matter more. And I put white as I add there, but he says our lives matter more, but that the white church matters more. And I think that, you know, this is, is a really an important point. What he's kind of arguing here is that, you know, we have, again, this mindset, these doctrines of white supremacy have not been taught. They're not like, you know, explicit, but they've been implicit and they've not been questioned in the way that they should. And so he puts that forth. But the problem is, is he says, you know, what's so if this is the answer, this is the, you know, the steps to the first step recovery is admitting the problem, naming the problem, and then basically owning the problem, just like, you know, what it says in, you know, many 12-step programs. But he also says that there's a big stumbling block that is kind of right now preventing the church from moving forward, for even actively starting these steps to recovery. And he says that's a tension between communal responsibility and individual complicity, this kind of community mindset versus individual mindset. What does that mean to you, Troy? Yeah, so it's it's unfortunate when you think of the church, you know, most of what's been proclaimed, I guess, at least in our lives as we've attended church, is this idea that if you do something, if you sin in a certain way, you need to take responsibility for that. And in taking responsibility for that, you remove that burden from your back. So it's lifted, so you feel guilt-free, and you can move forward. But any any sort of issues that might come up related to the group, the church, or the, the, the communal aspect of the organization, any of those, like we're really not 
we've kind of been instructed like we're not responsible for those or we don't have to atone for those type of sins. And when you start getting into that sort of thinking, it it takes this individual complicity and it it allows you to be guilt free mm-hmm. going forward when in reality there's still a communal responsibility as well that's not being addressed. And I think that becomes even a bigger issue. And Jones really says in the article, he talks about kind of in his own life being raised kind of in the Southern Baptist Church that he was, you know, he internalized the cycle of sin of confession and repentance as a part of his life. That, okay, you have to own what you've done and act on it. But in the same thing of of that cycle, he also said that there was a deeper current that he was a part of, of innocence and entitlement. You know, individually, I was a sinner. Okay, but collectively, I was part of a special tribe, and so you know, oh, the, because the church is a special tribe, we are we aren't responsible for what's happening in culture. We aren't responsible for what's happening before us. It's it's just this and this moment. It's very much focused on the present. It disconnects the present from the past, and it disconnects the individual from the community. Right. And that you know, this is kind of under the lie, and this is you know why I think that it's been so hard for the church to deal with racism in a practical way. Like, oh, we can do a practical thing like let's kind of partner with a, a, an African-American church to do something. We'll do an act, but really dealing with the attitudes, the mindsets, and a mentality that's been ingrained unintentionally or slightly invisible in the church is harder to kind of say that, hey, we have kind of uh, had this kind of special tribe vision that makes us higher than other people. And that, you know, that we must confess that actually we've been part of a system that even if it didn't create racism, it's actually supported and sustained it. But, you know, I think that's the challenge of this kind of the steps to recovery that um, the church needs to think about. Right. And then what we want to do is actually take it one step further. Of course, we're always trying to have this this dialogue, this conversation that can be helpful and positive. And so the third point that we're going to address is what we're just going to call silence. What has happened, I think, from a church's perspective is this failure to recognize this generational sin. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so generational sin is something, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but actually when I was growing up as a kid, we heard, I heard a lot of teaching on this, you know, Mm -hmm. sermons and whatnot. But the idea of generational sin comes from the Old Testament, and it comes from a series of verses in Deuteronomy where it says, you know, it it talks about, you know, if if you do this, if you serve God, if you love him, then you will be blessed, and your children will be blessed. There will be this kind of line of blessing that goes down your generations. But then it also says in the in that same passage that you know if you don't follow God's ways, if you don't keep the Sabbath holy, if you don't you know if you, if you do these things that are sin, that it brings a curse on on you, your children, up to the third and fourth generation. So the idea is there's generational blessing. You know you follow God, and there's this, this idea that that there's going to be blessing, and you've kind of cleared the path for your kids. But if there's been sin in the past, that that can cause a stumbling block even to your kids, even if they choose to follow you. Now, some people say, well, generational sin, that was an Old Testament thing. We, we live under a new covenant. But I've seen over and over and again in my own experience that when you live in a culture or situation or family where people in the past have made bad choices, it affects. It affects your people's attitude, their mindset, and it can even uh, affect kind of physical, emotional, spiritual things. You know, we've all seen that certain things like, you know, alcoholism and stuff run in families. We go, why is that? You know, well, choices change DNA and change behavior, and they open up doors for things that make it more difficult for other people coming down the line. 
And so the argument is this, that the silence on generational sin is that, you know, by saying, oh, well, racism happened in the past. You know, I, I wasn't part of it. None of my, my ancestors were slave owners. Or, you know, I've always grown up in the church and my, my parents were part of the church, grandparents. You know, we didn't participate in those negative things in culture. You know, we actually supported maybe equal rights amendments and whatnot. But it, maybe that church, maybe that denomination was part of either being complicit, not saying anything to, against the injustice that was happening, or actually doing things that s- supported injustice. And that is a legacy that we live in, even if we didn't make the choice. Um, in the words of Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire, but we still have to deal with the effects of the fire. Yeah, and so that, that goes along with this third point of silence, which is, I think it's, it's really difficult if we're not turning, if we as a people are not turning from these ways that, that may have been instilled in us, what I would call you know, these, these wicked ways. We might have confessed our personal sin, but we're, we're really struggling with this larger communal sin. I think it's really difficult to expect the God or our God to to hear our prayers or even even to do something about them when when we're living in this and we're not we're not addressing the communal issues that are happening. I think I mean for some of us we might say, well, you know, God always hears our prayers and and you know it doesn't really matter if we're I mean everybody's got sin and there's always going to be issues, but he's always listening and hearing and and sure I think that can be the case, but I I think it also goes to if we see that there's an issue and we're really not addressing it, even if our personal slate is clean, there is still huge issues that are not being addressed that are right in our midst. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point in the 21st century, we definitely see those. You can't say that you didn't know this doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. but we're intentionally sliding past it and being silent. And I think this issue of silence on generational sin, part of it is because it's there's not a nice book that says, these are the 12 steps that you need to do to confess racism and kind of heal bonds in your community and your church and be free of that and, and change your community. It's, it's a messy, messy thing, and it's a hard thing. Yeah. I want to kind of, as we're moving to for the end of this podcast, tell a story um, about where I kind of was, first learned about the whole issue of generational sin uh, and racism and, and how we go about kind of thinking through what we do about that. Um, when I was in graduate school in the UK, I uh, shared a desk and, and right around the corner from me was a student from Rwanda. He was a pastor and he had actually escaped the ethnic cleansing that was going on in Rwanda in 1994 through the help of a missionary friend who helped him get a student visa. So he ended up doing a PhD the same time when I started my master's and then went on to do a PhD. And uh, he never planned to do this. It was just his kind of way to basically protect him and his family. But he chose the topic of reconciliation or race and reconciliation. So he himself was a Tutsi. That was the tribe of people that were being murdered in Rwanda. And he was having to go through the kind of, uh, not just the forgiveness of how to forgive the Hutu for killing family members and, and decimating his community, 
but also going through this study and revelation process about the role that he, his family, his community, and the church had played in setting up the situation. So as early as the 1900s, when Rwanda was a Belgian colony, it was government officials who basically kind of put labels on these tribal groups. They before hadn't been kind of differentiated in these ways, but the people that came from a certain kind of ancestry, they were called the Hutu and other were Tutsi. And the, the Belgian government had kind of elevated the Tutsis as being kind of more superior in their stature, what they look like, and in their mental capabilities. And so it introduced this kind of idea of racism into the culture that hadn't been there before. And this created tensions over time. And he, you know, as he began to study this, he began to realize that, you know, there's things the church had done to actually support the system, especially him being a, a Tutsi, because of not just what they did, but their silence and complicity of allowing this kind of racial classification and elevation to kind of keep driving the culture. In 1997, I was part of a book group where he, I, and some other students read the then new book by Miroslav Volf, Exclusion and Embrace. And this is a book that Miroslav Volf wrote about his own travels through the idea of reconciliation and this core question, could you hug your enemy, the enemy that killed your family, the enemy that's caused pain in the land, and could you take responsibility for your role in that? And just, you know, there was many days in that book club where there was lots of arguments, there was lots of tears, as we began to see how did the church play a role in, you know, not just in the Rwandan situation, in the Bosnia-Herzegovina situation, maybe even a racism in other contexts in, in Scotland and England and in the U.S. How might we need to kind of recognize that passivity and complicity has played a role in basically not doing justice and loving mercy to our brothers and sisters who have dealt with injustice through slavery and through kind of systems of oppression, even this world. It's conversations I still go back to when I read articles like this and struggle with how do I respond? It's not something easy, but I think recognizing this, the ideas and the metaphors that have driven us to this place of kind of looking blindly and turning an eye and saying, oh, I'm not responsible for that, when we're all part of the body of Christ. And if one part of the body hurts, we all hurt, even if that means us having to do something that's uncomfortable, seemingly against the grain to take responsibility to bring healing. Yeah, so it reminds me of a quote from a book I just released last month. In there I wrote, uh, when a religious group's mission is to aid and to help those who are hurting or even oppressed, and yet culture is finding that that same group is judgmental or selfish or simply uninterested in somebody else's adversity or their persecution or their hardship, that religious group's narrative will essentially change. A church that fails to act according to its, its mission statement, its vision statement, its, its values or purpose statements, um, those, those writings that are supposed to direct the initial outcome of that organization, if, those, if the church fails to act on those, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's silent. It's a, it's a silent church. And I make this last quote from the book, What on Earth is the Church Doing, uh, is the title of the book that I wrote and released last month. A quote that I have in there is, Silence means your church consents to injustice towards those whom they could otherwise be serving. And I think this is kind of paramount. If we, if we choose to say nothing, 
If we choose to do nothing, we really are choosing the side of injustice. So similar to the topic of in the criminal justice system, if you if you witness a crime and you say nothing, then you're culpable. You you should have said something. You should have come forth with the evidence that you were aware of or that you saw and that, that you witnessed. And if you don't, you're you're held liable as well. I think the church is in that same boat where if we say nothing and we do nothing and we choose to be silent, we consent to injustice. So we want to wrap up this podcast with a question, and it's a question that we don't have a nice, clear answer for. It's one that we're still thinking through and wrestling with, but we want to put it to you as a a way to kind of think about what does it mean to when we're addressing the sin of racism in American Christianity? We need to ask ourselves, are we accomplices to the sin of racism that is happening and has happened within our culture and the church, and what should we be doing about it? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified of future podcasts. And be sure to rate and review this podcast on your favorite platform or share it with your friends. We hope you're leaving today with a better understanding about religion and conversational tools to talk about it. We look forward to seeing you again in our next episode. So until then, take take care. care.